0: Hello, and welcome to the Entrepreneurs on Monocle Radio, the show all about inspiring people, innovative companies, and fresh ideas in global business. Today's program is all about timeless aesthetics in men's fashion. We meet the founder of an
1: elegant shoes and accessories label that's committed to artisan craft and handmade in Europe. I need to have some kind of edge that makes a jaw drop or that makes a head turn when walking on the streets. And we check in with the founder of a brand
0: that prides itself on simplifying the decision-making process by presenting a meticulously curated assortment of premium products.
2: We not only give you some of your quality at the right price, but also make your life easier by making the choice for you of what that design should be. And we don't change it year after year. It will remain part of our permanent collection. This is The Entrepreneurs with me, Tom Edwards.
0: You're listening to The Entrepreneurs. We start this week's show with a story of contrasts. Henrik Berg is the founder and creative director of Morhas, a men's footwear and accessories label with a compelling Mediterranean and Scandinavian heritage. And they've just opened their first store in Stockholm. Casa Morhas is a creative space to showcase their meticulously crafted shoes, handmade in Europe. The shop, like the footwear, reflects the brand's fusion of Spanish and Swedish influences. Henrik stopped by Midori House to talk about his commitment to timeless style and how his grandparents'
1: love story is a thread that's weaved through his business today. My grandmother is from Spain, so she's from Madrid. And my grandfather, he's from like the northern parts of Sweden, so like from the forests. And they met in Madrid because he was on a business trip, because he was working with my grandmother's brother. And uh, he was in Madrid, and then they met there... It couldn't be more opposite the two worlds from which they came, you know, my, my grandmother's super conservative family, uh, super strict uh, childhood, Catholic and so on and so forth. And then my, my, my grandfather, as charming as a man can be, but, you know, came from from, from the forest and uh, enjoyed wildlife and, and hunting and fishing. But, you know, they fell in love, uh, and it's a true love story. And he convinced my grandmother to move with him to Sweden. Imagine living in Madrid, being brought up in Madrid with this kind of hectic lifestyle, if you will, a beautiful city, and then moving to the forest of Sweden to a very, very small city where there's almost no one. And she's used to going out like with high heels and so on and so forth, and then she comes to this super small town. And my point with with telling stories that I think that that kind of like contrasting lifestyle and contrasting, contrasting feeling in our family has been quite fundamental in shaping me as a character. Then, of course, later on in life, I, I grew up in Spain as well, so so I lived in Spain and then moved to Sweden. So I got my share of that Spanish and Swedish heritage myself too. But I think in terms of like style, aesthetics, and I don't know the right word for it, but maybe savoir-faire has been extremely characterised by that lifestyle and not to say the least the contrast between Spain mm. and Sweden.
0: That's beautiful. It's a beautiful story. Um, well, tell me then a bit about that aesthetic and that savoir-faire. The, the actual products, tell me about, to the uninitiated, a lay listener, maybe they've not seen it. The, one, any of your shoes, for example... Imagine we had one here. Yep. Maybe they're on your feet. I can't see under the desk. <laughs> tell our listeners about how they recognise it. Morehouse yeah, more product.
1: I love to. So I think like if you look at the aesthetics and like the styling, whether that's the actual product or content or how we do the styling, there's always like in the centre we have this sense of like timeless style. If that makes sense, we want things to be quite seasonless. If that makes sense, and I want things to. Yeah, live for decades, uh, decades, and to be, uh, so that we're able to look back at it in like 10, 20, 30 years and think it's still relevant and uh, still think it looks good. So we have timeless there in the middle. Then we have this sense of like refinement around that. And what I mean about that is that we always find ways how to like make things slightly better and with slightly more edge to it, whether that's the product or whether that's the content or, we do a photo shoot that we're inspired by and we have the mood board, we always try to tweak it to make it slightly more sharper and slightly more exciting. And then the last bit, which arguably is the most important thing, is that I want the brand and the product and the imagery to have some sense of edge to it. And that edge could be articulated as sexy, it could be articulated as cheek, or whatever gets your juices flowing, man. That's, <laughs> that's the honest truth. Uh, because I think that a lot of brands out there that honors the timeless aesthetics sometimes become a bit boring, to be honest. Mm. And that's a big no-no for us and for me. Uh, I love the timelessness of it, and I appreciate that it's seasonless and trendless and that it lives forever. But I need to have some kind of edge that makes a jaw drop or that makes a head turn when walking on the streets. Uh, And I think that's noticeable in the product in the way we work with materials. I think it's very noticeable in the way we work with the silhouettes. And I think it's very noticeable in the way we work with content and, and with the brand. And with packaging and now with the physical store and with the people that we are in the team and so on and, and how we speak and so on and so forth. So I think it's in all touch points with the customer, if that makes sense.
0: It definitely does. And I think it's one of the things that struck me about the brand b- before we were speaking, looking at it, is that light, that lightness of touch. And I think that's a real monocle thing. We're, you know We're super committed to doing things properly, understanding the provenance of products. But you have to... Have a laugh some of the time. You need to do things with a wry smile and 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 with a light touch. And actually, that is very difficult. And your prioritising that, I think, is really instructive as to explaining the su- the success of uh, of Mordhas. Um, you mentioned the store. Now, one of the founding principles was. This uh, relationship with your customer, cutting out middlemen, being more well, direct to consumer—you could manage that relationship. You could make sure there was no disappointment in that process. Um, tell me—I guess it was then logical that it would have to manifest itself. That relationship, that intimacy with your clients and your customers—it would have to manifest itself in bricks and mortar. Was that always part of the plan?
1: It was always part of the plan, more or less. But I think it's one one important thing to this is that. I've never really seen more of us as a direct consumer model per se, or in other words, I haven't seen like, okay, we're gonna start a direct consumer model. It was more about okay, how do we design and like secure each touch point with the customer in the way that we want? And how do we ensure that the customer really understands the brand in the way that we want, you know? And in order to do that. It appears that the direct consumer model is the right way to operate. As I mentioned earlier, we want everything that we do to, to be at a certain level and in a certain certain way. And I wouldn't want to like hand that responsibility over to someone else. So I don't think that's something new if you look at the big brands such as I don't know like Louis Vuitton or whoever, they've done that for ages. So I think that the D2C or direct to consumer is something that people have been really good talking about in like recent years but for us it was more about okay this is the approach that makes sense for us and it appears to be a dc model so that's that's the first thing and then when it comes to the store it was just like a matter of timing you know we've been so focused on on sculpting the the product the collection the brand and uh, the online experience. So when we had achieved certain like strategic themes, I'm sounding, sounding very business now, but <laughs> when we had achieved- so It's a business uh,
0: program, yeah, that's you know, we do.
1: <laughs> but It sounds very corporate, but that's, that's actual, actual truth. So we had prioritizations, and when we had achieved those actual milestones, it was time for the store. And also, um, just, just to give some context to that, we are now, Six years old and uh, we've we've had like a showroom facility in each of every offices that we've been in. And we've been in like three, or four offices now. And what that meant is that we have the showroom, had their showroom open like once a week so that customer could come and, and try on the shoes and then buy the shoes. And every single day that we had the showroom open, it was a big bus and many people came and so on and so forth. So we've had more or less like a five, six year tests from a business case. Uh, so that served as a really good indication that customers really wanted uh, and craved a physical presence. Mm. So, so that's one thing that the customers wanted it. But then for us, it was also the time to really uh, communicate the brand physically and close the omni-channel circle. So it was both from a business perspective, a customer perspective, and very much from a brand perspective to really... Show the world who we are as a brand.
0: Well, let's talk then about the space because I think if people visit the store, if they look at uh, I- images of it, they will see the manifestation of some of these values and this like Spanish-Swedish fusion. It's you can kind of see it once you w- once you know it. And I wanted to ask about how you collaborated with the architect uh, Victor, I believe, oh, yeah. who, great man. Uh, he's a great man, but and a, a similar heritage. Do you, do you think that the project would have worked so well? Without that, I mean, w- did you know that th- this was the guy because you discovered this this this
1: shared kind of yeah yeah, yeah genetic no, code almost that you yeah. that you had? Again, I think that's a great question too. And, and and first of all, I think that Victor is a terrific guy, super talented architect. So just to give some context, Victor is half Spanish, half Swedish as well, and uh, spent a lot of time in Spain, so he really understood the vision right from the bat. And he helped me design the the showroom in our previous space. So we, we got uh, to know each other a bit then. So when it was time... Yeah, we, we had got to know each other a little bit at that time. But then when it was time for the physical store, we, we got deeper, of course. But he understood the vision right from the bat. And he nailed the vision right from the bat. Because it was not only to create like a space of contrast between the Mediterranean and Scandinavia, but it was also... I guess a lot of people say the same thing, but it was also about creating an ambiance that was like elegance or elegant without being snobby and, you know, chic without being stiff and, you know, uh, premium or like high quality without being, I don't know, excluding and so on and so forth. And I think that he really understood that from from yeah. a from a very early, very early point. And it's that light touch again that we spoke about yeah, earlier. I think yeah. It's hard to make that manifest
0: it in a premises, it but it, he it obviously is. did it.
1: And and like during our first workshop, we <laughs> we had like I had a bunch of references. Victor had a bunch of references, and his colleague or associate Johan as well. And you know, we had so many similar references and architectural preferences or or uh, architectural. Yeah, taste or whatever you call it, and I think I think that's crucial, definitely, to be able to create a store or a home or whatever it might be when it comes to design and architects to really align on the vision. Because don't make it harder than uh, what it can actually be. Find find the people that you like to work with, whether that's photography or architect or or architecture or whatever it might be. Find your allies uh, that shares the same brandy and if that makes sense, and and the vision, and then I think things will turn out pretty well. Well, I wanted to ask you about exactly that point. You make it sound very easy. The
0: product is obviously tremendously successful. The store looks great. It's very cool. Uh, got some admiring glances from our my 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 monocle colleagues here in the building. But it can't all have been that easy. Tell me about when things didn't work out? Or are there any particular moments where it was a real struggle or you felt defeated or you couldn't see a way through? What, what were those moments like? And are you one of these entrepreneurs that believes it's the difficult times that really help you to find excellence, actually? And mm. it, when it's easy, anyone can do it. And it's mm. the, the the challenges that are the character building things.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think... <laughs> First of all, I think that it's always very valuable to do your research. So, either if it's like finding the right architect, I love Victor, but, you know, I met with many, many, many architects before I uh, ended up with Victor. And the same goes with manufacturers and the same goes with branding agencies and photographers and so on and so forth. So, I think that's a very valuable lesson or a very useful tool to pursue to really you know, test the waters or go out there and, and and meet people before you start working together. Or you can try for a while, but just to, to give some insight into that, we do a lot of research. But then when it comes to the challenges, I'd say that one big challenge has definitely been to keep up with production as we grow in mm-hmm. the pace that we've grown, because... Bear in mind that this is mostly handmade products. Often, like plus 130 steps to make one pair of quality shoes it takes eight, like seven to eight weeks to make one pair. How do you how do you take that and combine it with rapid growth globally? Mm. You know, you need to keep your head down, uh, ensure you have a really close relationship with your manufacturer, and then invest a lot of time focus and dedication to logistics because if you don't get that formula or that equation to work um, then you yeah then 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 it's going to be pretty tough but of course other things as well Uh, we we got a truck stolen a truck uh, full of shoes stolen once. that was a pretty odd one and then, did you see? Did you ever find out? Did you see lots of very uh, well-dressed criminals walking around? <laughs> yeah, it was pretty weird, you know. But I spoke with some friends about it, and they uh, and we had a laugh about it actually, because uh, what to do? Um,
0: I mean, that must be heartbreaking, though, because you said you you work so tirelessly to safeguard this quite fragile supply chain, yeah. and all that love and craft and endeavour. And then it's gone in a, gone yeah. in a second.
1: But you, you you laughed. I mean, that's an amazing... Yeah, but I think, you know, you need to keep a little bit of distance to everything that you do, and especially in like careers or business or whatever. Like, at the end of the day, I love what I do. And, and, and Marcus is my first baby. Now I have a, a, a daughter who is, of course, my the love of my life. But at the end of the day, it's not my life. It's not my team's life. We sell shoes. We don't press buttons of, like, bombs. So it's pretty undramatic at the end of the day. And I think that you have to remind yourself of that. We have a huge responsibility to the the customer, we have a huge responsibility to the team and to the shareholders and to everyone involved. But if you get too, I wouldn't say too deep or too connected because I'm super deep and connected, but if you get too attached to it, I think that it ultimately can break you. So keeping that level of seriosity and responsibility and dedication Mm. and then keeping some distance to when times are tough for me that has been been very valuable that was henrik berg you can learn more by heading to morhas.com
0: you're listening to the entrepreneurs Next, we head to Italy. Listeners to this programme will no doubt remember friend of Monaco, Luca Falloni, founder of the eponymous brand, built to a philosophy of slow fashion and a commitment to conserving the made-in-Italy mark. Luca stopped by Midori House recently to chat about upcoming store openings, a worrying trend of Italian brands forsaking their local artisans, and to explain why no online feedback will ever compare to engaging with customers
2: directly. Online gives you a lot of numbers that you can analyze and you can learn about consumer behavior, etc. But you don't necessarily know why people behave a certain way just by looking at the numbers. Why, well, when they are with you in store and they tell you, actually... The stars are, are too short, I don't want them. And online you might not, they return them, but you don't know exactly why. You might ask a few people, but you don't, you don't know why. Well, in store you can have that direct relationship, of asking questions and uh, listening how they learn about the brand, what they like, what they don't like, uh, what they like about the products, which products you should do more of and which one you should improve. You learn about things that are not working, things that 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 are working. So you can improve you, you as a business, but also it's good for the customer in a way to have another channel. Where they can access the brand uh, convenience, you know, they can return online orders, they can exchange, mm. they can ask questions, check the products, and have a personal touch.
0: Um, let's talk about the real heroes, as well as eLuca. It's of course the products that you make. Tell us what it is that your customers uh, acquire, because I guess people will know you've mentioned these sort of um, heritage materials, really, uh, you know, uh, beautiful fabrics that you source, you know the, and understand the provenance. But tell us a bit more about the style, the cuts, the approach. What is it that the consumer comes to
2: you for and why do they keep coming back? We are well positioned in terms of giving you uh, a product which is at the edge between formal and casual, which which is a trend of dressing of the last, you know, uh, 10 years, let's say, and accelerated with COVID. Um, so, we, we offer a classic product that never go out of fashion and we do so in, in, in great materi- materials. So, for men's that are... Uh, you know, they want something of quality and they they don't want to think about it too much. They they need to trust the brand that makes the right choice for them. We offer those high quality icon pieces that you we will always need. So for instance we have our classic linen shirt is fantastic, but we will not give you a choice of ten type of linen shirts. We give you two or three choices and then we give, we offer you a lot of color choice for instance which I think is something the main value. Uh, same for our cashmere pieces in the winter. Uh, we would have several designs but at zip-up will only be one choice. We will not give you too many choices and, and and so we we not only give you something of quality at the right price but also make your life easier by making the choice for you of what that design should be and we don't change it year after year. It will remain part of our permanent collection.
0: That, that's really interesting and I wonder do you think that there are brands who are too affected by chasing trends this idea of seasonality and new lines trying to constantly be selling the new and the next thing and actually maybe consumers they don't want that they don't want that it's overwhelming that choice isn't it they just want to trust they
2: want to know and they like staples they like consistency yeah i certainly think that brands put too much emphasis on changing everything every year rather than really focusing on improving. And it's Mm. about constant improvement. Like when I told you that we design something and we have it in our permanent collection, what I mean is that that design will never go away. But every year we collect feedback from a customer to improve it a tiny bit. And, and it might be just about a fit or, you know, a small design element or something that needs to be adjusted about the material. But we, we do try to, to, to go for an endless improvement over the years. Tell me about your expansion plans down the, the track because obviously you have built
0: something which is very trusted already. And that's hard for a relatively newer entrant into the marketplace. So that presumably gives you a great foundation to then explore new opportunities whether those are new geographies products whole product categories well, tell me about how you look to the future luca what how do you calibrate your thinking what's the big strategic things that are front of mind for you as you look over a longer term time horizon
2: yes yeah, so there are many aspects in which i look at the expansion of the business and obviously one of them besides growing the business is grow, making sure that we, we can grow the supply of our products keeping the same quality obviously it's easy to To give great service and a great product when you when you're a small business. As you grow, that becomes much more complicated. So one of our focuses is to really focus on quality control of the product and of the service. So we are investing a lot on that. And in terms of expanding the business, we. On the online side, we are pushing new geographies that we were not investing that much in marketing before. On the retail side, we are now focusing mainly in Europe and US in expanding our retail network. Asia is something that is not in the near future in our plan, but we we will eventually think about it. But now you, you, Europe and US are the focus collection wise we over the years we we have expanded organically i i like to say uh, from one category to the other for instance the very first trousers we did were linen trousers and not because We wanted to do trousers, but, you know, people that were buying our linen shirts said, do you also have linen trousers? And we "We thought, actually, we know one thing or two about linen textile. Let's learn about how to make trousers out of it, you know. So in terms of collection, we are the size, we are relatively happy with the size. But there are two categories where we can do more over the years. And one is outerwear and one is shoes, where we basically don't have an offering yet. So we are working on adding some new designs there.
0: Uh, it's very exciting i'm sure your your converts your de- your dedicated uh, customers will be very excited to hear that there's potentially these uh, developments ahead talk to me a bit about the challenge then of uh, the challenges of scale because you've already mentioned a couple of things quality control keeping that consistency is increasingly difficult presumably you have conversations with people potential partners backers even who might say look 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 you've got a great brand you need to go Wholesale, you got to go bigger. You got to think big, big, big. Growth, growth, growth. Do you have those conversations? I know you obviously say no when people do say that, but what what does that do? Those conversations, does it provide food for thought? Does it just actually Luca make you more confident that you're right and you're going to stick to your to your guns? Would we ever see
2: wholesale as part of the Luca Flownie idea? Yeah. So wholesale is something you will never see from us. So to give you. The answer first, as they say. Uh, why is that? Is because to be profitable on the wholesale channel, and obviously as a business you, you need to be profitable, otherwise you go bust. To be profitable on that channel, you need to overcharge. The customer must pay a very high price because there is the margin of a third-party retailer that you need to add to the, to the product price. So we will never do that. But it's not only about price point that we'll have to change when you do wholesale. It's also you lose control of the customer service or the explanation of your products and also where your products end up. And we want to retain a full control. If you think about some of the most successful brands in other category of the world, like Apple is essentially a direct-to-consumer brand. Tesla is a direct-to-consumer brand. Uh, Not only you, you, you control the customer experience, but you get the feedback directly from the customer. If a customer buys my product in a store, which is not mine... How do I know if they tell the system the the, the, the trousers is too long or too short? I don't know. It's, I mean, it's, pretty, it's a pretty obvious thing.
0: And yet so many brands don't follow that, that logic. And maybe that's where they begin to lose their, their way a little bit because they sort of expand too aggressively or they listen to all of those unhelpful voices saying, come yeah, on, come on. And
2: obviously, like, if you want to span wholesale at the beginning is much faster. If you have a good brand, you can find a lot of accounts quite fast. But in the long term, I think it damages the brand. And and this is what we are seeing in many other brands out there. Mm. Uh, Something you said that
0: strikes me as interesting, Luca, which is, uh, again, lots of the entrepreneurs that we talk to on this programme want to talk about their sustainability credentials and that agenda. Understandably, we're in a climate crisis. This is very important. Consumers, of course, are demanding it. And actually, in fashion, luxury products, quite often we come back to this idea that, well, there are two things actually about sustainability that I think are maybe not mentioned enough one is exactly what you just mentioned which is first of all the first thing has to be the business has to be sustainable because otherwise there's no point having the conversation if you go if you go under and secondly another meaning or application of sustainability might just be to buy better maybe buy less buy things that last buy products you trust that you'll keep for for a long time and so in some ways it's less about where you're sourcing your materials or what your supply chain looks like. It's actually about doing things properly. Do you think that's a fair point? And, you know, do you think, again, are there lots of fashion brands or competitors in the space who don't really understand that, that point?
2: I think a lot of businesses, a lot of fashion businesses, get sustainability for the environment goes, goes hand in hand with financial sustainability for the business. And I'll give you an example. A lot of these brands are produce co- new collections every year. At the end of the season, they need to first mark down the collection and then the, the other part that hasn't been sold, they have to either burn it essentially or massively discount it for, to find a buyer. But the buyer wouldn't necessarily have won that unless it was 90% off. So you're essentially producing a piece that no one wanted which is bad for your cost and is bad for uh, the environment. We, in the permanent collection, we rarely in the last eight years have thrown away any garment. And that is only when a batch from a supplier is, comes off, complete damage, and even then we try to fix it somehow. But, um, and that's because we have statistics of what people buy and when, and we produce based on, on that. And at the end of the season, if I don't sell enough linen shirts this summer, Well, first of all, people buy them during the whole year. And second, there is next summer coming in a few months. So I don't worry about... We we effectively uh, do good for the environment by having a permanent collection. Yeah, it's interesting.
0: Um, Tell me a little bit about, Luca, the way that you plan for the, the future. Because the thing that strikes me is you make this all sound very easy. You're working in consultancy. You had an idea. You did it you you went oh yeah then the pandemic came along that's yeah we managed that that was okay these things are not easy you make it sound so presumably there have been hugely difficult moments i mean the pandemic amongst them um tell us a little bit about when things haven't worked out or when something's disappointed you whether it's a supplier or a product or something how do you navigate those times because it can't all be plain sailing
2: no no no. So first of all, absolutely it wasn't easy. It it is not easy and it will never be easy. At, at any scale of a business, from when you start to when you're really big, there are challenges and um, there are they can be a stream. Entrepreneur's status of mind moves from, you know, excitement to despair, I guess. And that's you know, you always think next year will be better, but there new problems come, come up and you know, when you're small you have to build a brand, so you're struggling to get the customers and when you start to get the customers then you have to scale supply and It's difficult to scale supply, and then there are when you're big enough, you have problem with the you know if you're doubling revenue every year in the early years, let's say, after two or three years, you are much bigger than than before and. Perhaps some of your team members, uh, you know, they were good for the, a small organization now. Ca- they cannot handle the new uh, challenges. So there is always constant changes of, in your team, your processes. Look, when you have one store and I can, let's say, visit it daily, it's one thing. When you have uh, 10 and they're in different geographies, another thing. When you have 100, is another problem. Customer service. Eight years ago, when it was two or three employees on the, in the business, I was giving, you know, Answer to their customer service question. Now you need to how do you pass the knowledge to main employees down the line that that can independently solve problems. So processes is an area where constantly every you need to redesign everything basically. Um, that's good stuff. Like in the very short term, then what are you most
0: excited about? You've already you've hinted at some other kind of product lines and developments, which is all very exciting. Um, what what are you most excited about as well? What do we sit here in now, sort of mid June in London? As you said, the sun shining unusually. Um, are you looking forward to a summer holiday? Is it a particular one of these trade shows? Is it about actually going back to meet maybe one of the original suppliers who's still practicing their craft back home in, in Piedmont? What, what, what are you most excited about in the next few weeks and months ahead?
2: Look, one big project we have now is the Kings Road store. We just signed a lease on, on, on Kings Road and it would be our biggest store. Um, Not only the biggest, because we have a big store in New York, but in in New York is more um, a shopping neighborhood which is busy on the weekend, but it's quite calm over the week. While having a store in Kings Road in front of Duke of York Square, there are 15 million a year, 15 million people a year that walk that street. So it's a a big responsibility to get it right. So we are really spending a lot of time um, designing the store. There will be a VIP room. Um, there, there will be a bar. Uh, there will be some. The, 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 even how to train the staff that to work in, in this type of stores for us will be something new. We've always used to run smaller stores, more focus on the product and on the knowledge around the product rather than a total community experience. So I'm really excited about it. Um, I'm, on the product we are, we're doing, I'm really excited about outerwear. Uh, because we, we, we launched blazers in linen and in cashmere, but now we, want, we, are, we are prototyping a full range of uh, casual jackets, etc. So, and this is something new, and, and it's always difficult uh, also for a brand how to expand. Uh, you need to expand category in a way which is organic mm. and true to the brand. Um, and, and so it's, it's always difficult to get it completely right, and not only the product needs to be right, but it needs to fit the brand and the story of how you got there.
0: That was Luca Filoni. You can learn more by heading to lucafiloni.com. And do look out for their latest store on King's Road here in London, opening later this autumn. That's all for this episode of The Entrepreneurs. We'll be back at the same time next week. Do look out for Eureka in the meantime, coming your way every Friday. The program was produced by Laura Kramer with mixing and editing by Callum McLean. Listen again and find out more about the program at monocle.com. That's where you can subscribe to the magazine and read more about better businesses every month. You can follow us and catch up with the archive via your preferred podcast platform too. To contact the Entrepreneurs Team, email Laura on lrk at monocle.com. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye and thanks for listening to The Entrepreneurs.